So let me pray, and then we'll get into uh, what we're talking about today. So, Father, we, we give you thanks that you give us rest for our souls, Lord, that, that you meet us um, wherever it is that we are, Lord, you'll meet us there. And so we pray you do that now as we look at your word together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've talked about this before, but back when I was in college, I, I worked at this gym, and at this gym, which I know you look at me and you're like, oh, that guy never has been in the gym in his life, but that's okay. <laughs> I worked there, I didn't work out there. That's the <laughs> distinction, okay? Those are two very different things. You can work there, but not work out. And uh, at this gym, we would have all the teams that were coming to play uh, the local NBA team, the Chicago Bulls, all the teams that were coming to play them would come for their like practice before the game. And uh, this was back uh, in the early 2000s. And in the early 2000s, there was a big controversy in the NBA around one player, Allen Iverson. And Allen Iverson got into this trouble because he stopped going to practice. And he had this, this, um, this press conference where, you know, all the reporters, they're, they're just talking about how he doesn't go to practice. And, and he, he has this press conference and he's like, practice? What are we talking about? Practice? Like, like, look at what I do in the game. I don't need to practice. Why are we wasting all this time talking about practice? And maybe a week or two later, his team, the 76ers, come to town to play the Bulls. And, of course, it's my job to, like, look after these teams. So I'm dying to know, is Alan Iverson going to come to practice? And, of course, he doesn't come to practice. He doesn't show up to practice at all. Uh, about a week or so later, another team came to town. And, and there's a player on that team that, for a while, like, Alan Iverson and this guy were, like, rivals of each other. And uh, this other team comes to town. It's the Toronto Raptors. And their big star on the team is a guy named Vince Carter. And Vince Carter is one of the greatest to ever play the game. He's just an incredible basketball player. One of, the, one of the greatest to ever play. And he was kind of known for, like, he could, like, soar through the air, sort of like Michael Jordan. I mean, he was just, you know, kind of high flyer, cut to the rim, slam dunk guy. But as he got older, he couldn't do that so much anymore. And so he needed to change his game a little bit if he wanted to keep playing. And so uh, they have their practice. And then after practice one day, uh, I have to keep the gym closed so that Vince Carter can stick around. And he, he has a guy from, you know, somebody who works for the team is there just passing basketballs to him. And he's standing outside around the three-point line working on his long game. So here's a guy who only ever cut to the basket. And now as he's getting older, he has to practice something else. He has to be able to do something else. And so he begins to practice his long game. Now, what is Vince Carter doing versus what Allen Iverson's doing? Now, Vince Carter, in a sense, is becoming wise. He's becoming wise in his shooting ability. You know, he, he learned the right form. He learned the information on how to do it, but he couldn't do it very well. So what does he do? He practices it over and over and over again so that what he did on the practice court would come out in everyday life, would come out in a game situation when he's under pressure. And that's what it is to become wise. That's what we've been talking about. And here's our definition of wisdom from uh, the first week in the series. Wisdom is persevering in doing what you've learned from Jesus. Jesus talks about the, the two builders and, and the one built their house on the sand, the one on the rock. And Jesus said, the person who is wise is the person who takes these words of mine and puts them into practice. And so that's what it is to be wise. It's not only knowing the right thing, but it's doing it day after day after day, even when, actually, especially when it's hard. And that's the perseverance part. So when we're under the most pressure, wisdom is what comes out of us rather than foolishness. Now, we've spent two weeks looking at wisdom so far, and what we've seen is a person can't become wise unless they get the wisdom of today and the wisdom of fear. Those are the two things we've talked about. The wisdom of today, it's, it's actually to plant seeds today of what you want to harvest tomorrow. That's the wisdom of today. It's like to actually do what you 
uh, become, uh, do things today so that you become who you want to be tomorrow. That's the wisdom of today. And then the wisdom of fear last week is to worship God above all people and all things. And then along with those two comes our third topic, and that's the wisdom of friendship. Now, the book of Proverbs actually teaches us that, get this, that you will not become wise unless you make and keep good friends. You won't become wise unless you make and keep good friends. But there's two problems with making and keeping good friends. And one is that, you know, the older that you get, the harder it is to make and to keep good friends. You know, the older you get, the more complicated life becomes. You know, the busier you get with your career, the busier you are with your family and raising children, and the the crazier the concerns of life are. and, And life just gets more complicated and more full, which means you have to then become intentional about making friends and being friends. But secondly, there's something else working against us, no matter how old or how complicated your life. And it's this. Do you remember our philosopher friend, Charles Taylor, from last week? He says that we now live in an age of what he calls excarnation. And excarnation is actually just the opposite of incarnation, right? So to incarnate is to be embodied in the flesh. It's to be present. Christians know that word very well. You know, we always talk about the incarnation of Christ, Christ putting on flesh and dwelling among us. That's incarnation. But excarnation is the opposite. It's to be disembodied. Excarnation is to be distant. And in our modern culture, we actually find it a lot easier to connect in disembodied ways than in embodied ways. That excarnational, to be excarnational rather than incarnational. You know, we tend to think that, you know, if I saw what you're up to on Instagram... Or I read your post that I'm connected with you. You know, we're connected. I saw it. I know what you're doing. You know what I'm doing. But what we'll see as we look at these passages is there is no way, there is no way to actually be a friend and be disembodied. You can't be a friend and be disembodied. Now, of course, the biblical authors, they could have never dreamed of the modern technology that we have today. You know, they couldn't have dreamed of a telegraph, let alone a FaceTime call. So that's not really in their category. But don't miss the point. The point we'll see is that true friendship actually requires something of you. It requires you to offer more than just information, you know, whether that's giving information or receiving it. It actually requires a lot more. It actually requires lived out embodied action on behalf of and for the sake of your friend. And in that way, if you think about it, friendship is a lot like wisdom. It's a lot like our definition of wisdom. Friendship requires the same kind of acting on the information that you learn. It's not just knowing about somebody, but putting that knowledge into action over and over again on behalf of the person who you know. But this is why friends end up making us wise. It's not just that friends give wise counsel, though they do. But to be a friend to someone is to put actual wisdom into action for their sake. And therefore, the very act of doing that is what makes you wise. So the more you are a friend to someone, the wiser you become. And so what we'll see in our passages today is that incarnational friendship is what makes you wise. And so if you want to be wise, you have to have good friends and you have to be a good friend. That actually, without friendship, wisdom is only this abstract idea. Um, there's very little actually to put into practice without friends. And so let's look at three things about the wisdom of friendship. We'll look at the benefit of friendship, the cost of friendship, and then the best of friendship. So the benefit, the cost, and the best. And first, the benefit of friendship. 
We have to start here. Because if I started on the cost of friendship, all of you would get up and leave after that and be like, I don't want to be friends with anybody. Um, and so Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Or look at Proverbs 18, 24, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, here's what these two Proverbs are saying. They're, they're actually saying that a friend brings something into your life that you can't get from any other relationship. Something into your life that you don't get from a sibling even, or a parent, or a spouse. Look again at Proverbs 18, 24. Do you see that phrase, a friend who sticks closer than a brother? That word there, sticks closer, it's a Hebrew word. It's often translated in the Bible as cleave. And it means actually a commitment out of passionate love. And so what these verses are saying is that there's a unique necessity to friendship that we can't get from any other relationship. And at the start of that, it's, it's a, that idea is a closeness, it's a commitment, it's a, a nearness, a cleaving that you can't get from, uh, you can get from a friend that you're not going to get from any other relationship. And of course, a sibling can be that kind of friend. Actually, a spouse can be that kind of friend. Well, by the way, what is a friend? You know, in both, both these verses, both Proverbs 17 and 18... The word for friend, it actually has with it the idea of loyalty. Uh, A friend is a person, get this, a friend is a person who knows everything about you and yet loves you anyway. That's what loyalty is. It's I know everything about you and in spite of all of that, I'm still your friend. That's what loyalty is. But that word friend also has to do with the idea of participation. In other words, in like sharing life together, participating in something together, which means, think about what we were saying earlier. Friendship can't be disembodied. It has to be incarnational in some way. And, and I think how C.S. Lewis describes the nature of a friendship, it actually gets the sense of these two verses perfectly. Here's how he put it uh, in his chapter on friendship in his book, The Four Loves. He says, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. In other words, there's something that you both participate in together. There's something that you both see the same. There's something that you both do that's the same. So let's put that back together and just think for a minute about your best friends. Are your best friends, your closest ones, are they the ones who only follow you digitally? The ones who hit like on your personal updates on the screen? Is that who you think your best friends are? Or are the closest ones the ones that call you? The ones that show up? The ones who actually incarnate in some way into your life? You know, they helped you move. They took you to the airport. Those are the two things that you know someone's your friend if they do that. They cried with you. They spend time with you. You've built joyful memories together, inside jokes that nobody else would understand. And so real friendship, it's incarnational, it's embodied. And now that doesn't mean, by the way, that a friend must be physically in in person with you to be a friend. Friends can still live thousands of miles away. You may only see them on FaceTime, but in some way they're embodied in your life. They know something about you, you know something about them, and you act on what you know. 
The definition of a friend is a person who puts into practice, who acts on their knowledge of you in some tangible, real way. And in the book of Proverbs, there's at least four ways to do that. I'm sure there's more, but four ways the book of Proverbs explicitly says that a friend acts on your behalf. In other words, four ways a friend benefits you. These are the benefits of friendship. And the first one is honesty. Um, Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And the old King James Version says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Isn't that a nice saying? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. Wait a second. You read that and you think, what kind of friend wounds you? What kind of friend is that that comes and stabs you? But the idea here isn't the idea of a friend stabbing you in the back. It's the idea of a friend more like a surgeon telling you the truth, even though it hurts. Uh, Years ago, it was probably the first friend's wedding that I was in. And so, you know, I was a newbie. I didn't know that you had to do certain things. And one of the things I didn't know that you had to do in order to be in the wedding was when you put on the tuxedo to actually zip up your fly. I didn't know that you had to do that. And so we go through the whole wedding, and I'm there in front of, you know, mostly people I don't know, thankfully. But we go through this whole wedding, maybe 150, 200 people in this church on a hot day. And uh, then we, the wedding's over. We go outside to take the photographs. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm kind of like checking to make sure I'm all good for the photograph. And I look down and I realize my fly had been down the entire wedding. Now, what I needed in that moment was a friend. I needed a friend. Somebody who would wound me and tell me the truth. And what this text is saying is actually much stronger than that. You need a friend who, of course, is going to point out the embarrassing things about you, but actually you need a friend. A real friend is somebody who will point out your harmful behaviors. A friend who will come and tell you when you've been too harsh to someone. A friend who will come and tell you that your relationship with someone has become inappropriate. And though at first that news, that honesty hits you like a wound, it can be trusted. And so the love of a friend, it's more like surgery than a stabbing. Now contrast that with an enemy who, by the way, the enemy here isn't actually stabbing. The enemy is actually just flattering you, telling you what you want to hear rather than what you need to hear. In other words, the enemy just leaves you in your brokenness. And so if you only have people around you who flatter you, you'll never know the harm that you're doing to yourself and to others. And that's why you need a friend. That's the benefit of friendship. That's the first one. The second one is actually care, that they care for you. Proverbs 25, verse 20. Uh, it says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound. Like, those are really harsh images. You're freezing, and so they take your coat away. You're bleeding, and they pour vinegar on it. Like that is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Or this one, Proverbs 27, verse 14. It says, if, anybody, if anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. <laughs> Some people are just morning people, and you have to get over it, okay? Uh, one more, Proverbs 26, verse 18. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of... I love the picture of this. It's like a guy just, just shooting them off, yelling and screaming. That's the picture. So like somebody like that is one who deceives their neighbor and then says, I was on the journey. Now, what do all these have to do with, you know, singing lightheartedly to a grieving person, being loud first thing in the morning, inappropriate or hurtful humor? All of these have to do with care. Like, do you care about the other person? 
Because if you care about them, then you're going to take how they're feeling and what they're going through into context of what you're going to do. The person who does these things is emotionally disconnected to the other person. You know, They don't know the person well enough to know what will be helpful or hurtful. And so if I can be happy when you're sad, I'm not really your friend. A friend voluntarily ties their own emotion to their friends. And therefore, if your friend is sad, you're sad. If your friend is happy, you're happy. And here's where this begins to really shine through. Say there's something that, that you desperately want in life. Something you desperately want. You want a job or a promotion. Or you want a relationship, a spouse. You want to have children. Say there's something, whatever it is, something you desperately want in life. But instead of you getting it, your friend got it. They got the promotion. They got the spouse. They got the kid. Now, what a friend would do in that situation is rejoice with the person who got the thing. They would actually be happy for them. They would celebrate with them. That's the benefit of a friend. So the first benefit is honesty. The second is care. And then thirdly, it's advice. In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Now, this verse always gets used for men's conferences, but I promise you this applies to women too. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a brilliant German pastor and theologian uh, who was actually he was living in, in Germany during World War II and was actually part of a plot to try and take Hitler down. Uh, so he's a good, good guy. Um, and uh, he put it this way in his, his book, Life Together, which he's talking about friendship and the relationships that people, Christians, should have with one another. He said this, A Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him, notice this, he needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. Now, do you hear that little twinge of wisdom in there? Because wisdom is doing the thing again and again and again and again, right? So he needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother is sure. Now, in other words, what he's saying there is that friends have a role, a responsibility to, to instruct you in the way of wisdom. Uh, friends, not only, not only do you need friends who, who will tell you the truth about yourself, that's the honesty benefit, but you need friends who will tell you the truth about the world that you live in and ultimately will tell you the truth about Christ and they'll point you to him. And so the bottom line is a good friend will always point you to Christ because the Christ in my own heart is always weaker than the Christ in the word of my friend, of my brother. My own heart is uncertain, but my brother's is sure. And so one of the benefits of friendship is they point you to Christ. They instruct you. They advise you. And last and not only is a friend honest and caring and instructing, but a friend gives you joy. Look at this, Proverbs 27, verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart. Now, those are two images of, of wealth and prosperity and goodness and gladness and rejoicing. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart. And then comparing it to that, the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. And that word pleasantness, it literally means sweetness. The whole image here of friendship is, is one of joy, of glad-heartedness, that friends should bring you joy and laughter and goodness. 
A friend should warm your heart with affection. And once again, Lewis, he always puts these things best. He says that friendship love is when the whole group, all the friends, when the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, or funniest in the others. Those are the golden sessions when four or five of us, after a hard day's walking, have come to our inn, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, and our drinks at our elbows. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. Friendship is pleasantness. It gives joy to the heart. So these are the things you get from incarnational friendship. You get embodied friendship. You get honesty. You get care. You get advice. You get joy. And so when you take friendship beyond the disembodied screen... Or when somebody does that in your life, friendship actually begins to make you wise because embodied friendship is really just wisdom lived out. You're actually just living it out in the life of another person. Wisdom lived out for the sake of another person. Now, we all want a friend like that. I want a friend like that. I want a bunch of friends like that. Friends who will be honest with me. Friends who care for me. Friends who will point me to the truth when I need to hear it. Friends who will bring gladness and joy. I want tons of friends like that, but here's the rub. The only way to get a friend like that is to become a friend like that. Which means there's a cost to friendship, and that's point two. This is the part where you all will want to leave. And the place that we see and understand the cost of friendship, the clearest, is when Jesus told his disciples that they were his friends. And that's the passage we had read to us earlier, John 15. Do you remember what he said in John 15, verse 13? He said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, what's he speaking to when he says that? What's he talking about? What he's speaking to is the idea of sacrifice, which we'll talk a lot more about sacrifice next week. There's a highlight. Yeah, come next week and we'll talk about how sacrifice is great. I know you all want to be here breaking down the door. But what Jesus is saying is that there is a cost to friendship. Friendship costs something. And what it actually costs to be someone's friend, to truly love them, he says, is to lay down your life for them. To truly be a friend is to lay down your preferences, to lay down your desires, your wants, your needs, even your rights for your friend. Put it this way. If if you're only ever receiving from a friend... If you're only ever getting the benefit from the friend, you're not really that person's friend. You're not that person's friend because it's not costing you anything. It's only costing them. And so think about your friendships. What are your friendships about? Are they about what you can get? Are they about what you can receive? Or your friendship's about what you can give, what you can contribute to their life. Now, a friendship, it should be mutual. Both should be giving to and serving one another. But in all honesty, to really be a friend is not actually to even worry about what you're receiving back. Now, I think one of the best pictures of costly friendship in the Bible is the the parable that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Probably you know the story, but... 
I'll retell it anyway. There, there's a religious leader. He comes to Jesus and he says to him, he's trying to catch him out in some kind of theological quandary. He says, hey, teacher, what do I need to get eternal life? And Jesus quotes back to him from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says back to him, okay, cool, cool, cool. That's really cool. Um, But who's my neighbor? Another way, put another way, he's asking, who's my friend? And in response to that, Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. It goes like this, that there's a Jewish man walking along the road um, all by himself. And he's robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And a priest walks by. You know, the religious leader, the person who you'd expect, maybe he should do something about it. The priest walks by, sees the man on the side of the road, and rather than helping him, crosses to the other side of the road and goes around him. And then Jesus says, that next, a Levite comes. And a Levite is a sort of special uh, kind of priest, so you know, it's escalating. Like, this, this person should really stop and do something about it. And the Levite comes by, he sees him on the side of the road, he crosses uh, and goes around him and keeps going. And then Jesus says, ah, oh, but then a Samaritan walks by. And if you know anything about the New Testament, you probably know that Samaritans and Jews don't like each other. They hate each other. But a Samaritan walks by. And look at me at Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 33. It says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now that phrase, he took pity on him. It's actually a Greek word for something like he felt it in his guts. That'd be a good translation of that word. It's, it's actually the word, the word uh, I'm going to say this word because it's like an onomatopoeia. I don't normally give you the word, but this is like an onomatopoeia. So it's uh, splanknizomai is the word. And I like this word because it sounds like the word that Hollywood sound editors use in fight scenes when someone's guts are cut out of them. Splanknizomai as it falls out on the floor. Here's what this is saying. The cost of friendship is your guts. That's the the cost of friendship. It's your guts. And not only that, it's to do something about what you feel in your gut. The story goes on to say that the Samaritan, he, he bandages up the man's wounds. He puts him on his donkey and carries him to an inn. And then here's what he tells the innkeeper, Luke 10, 35. It says, the next day he took out two denarii. Now, a denarii, by the way, uh, it's a one day's wages. And he actually gives two of them. Two days. Now, just imagine, think about what you get paid in a day. And imagine, just, you've never met this person before. They're actually your enemy. And you give two days worth of wages to care for this person. That's what he does. Uh, so it says, he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And so he's saying, I'll even give you more money. Now, do you see what it cost this man to be a friend? It cost him physically to bandage him up, to actually pick him up and carry him on the donkey. It cost him financially. It cost him at least two days wages. And even more than that, it cost him emotionally. Because the man that he helped was essentially his sworn enemy. In his mind, he had a right to leave the guy by the side of the road. And that's the story. And so when the story's over, Jesus then asked the man who came to him and tried to catch him out. He says, so who was the neighbor? Who was the friend in the story? And of course, the answer is the Samaritan. 
And so Jesus says to the man, well, now you go and do likewise. This is the cost of friendship. That to be a friend to someone is to spill your guts. It's to cost you physically. It's to cost you financially. It's to cost you emotionally. It costs you something to be a friend. Now, hold on to that. And I want to go back to what Jesus said in John 15, just before that verse that we've been looking at. So John 15, verse 12, Jesus said, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, this is not, you know, we're reading this like it's a sort of quid pro quo. So like if we do his thing, then we'll be his friend. But that's not exactly what he's getting at. What he's saying is, you're my friends if you're just like me. If you love like me, then that shows that you are like me, that we are friends. And just think for a minute, how did Jesus love? Well, you know, that word that we've been talking about, it's like nidzimai, the guts. Over and over again, that word is used to describe how Jesus feels when he sees people. That same word for guts, it's, it's only used 12 times in the entirety of the New Testament. One of the times is the one we just looked at. But 10 of them, the overwhelming majority of the times it's used, it is specifically describing how Jesus feels towards a person or a crowd or an entire city. He feels it in his guts. Splanknidzimai. And so the way to be a friend is to love like Jesus. The way to love like Jesus is to feel it in your gut. And that's what moves a person to sacrifice. That's what moves a person to lay down one's life. And so think of, again, think of your friendships. Don't you want a friend like that? One who's willing to spill their guts for you? To sacrifice for you? A friend who's willing to give up their preferences for you? Their own wants for you? their own needs, even their own rights for you, a friend who's willing to pay the cost for you. Well, the only way to get a friend like that is to be a friend like that. And maybe you're saying, okay, I get that, but it's just too costly. It's too risky. What if I am that friend and nobody does it back to me? Well, the good news is, if you're a Christian, you already have a friend like that. And that's point three, the best of friendship. Now, remember, we started out talking about this idea of incarnation versus excarnation, right? To excarnate is to be disembodied, to keep your distance. But to incarnate is to come near, it's to be embodied. And at the very center of the Christian faith, one of our most central beliefs is that God himself became incarnate. He drew near in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at John 15, but back in John 1, it says this about Jesus Christ, calling him the Word. So when it says the Word, it's talking about Jesus. It says the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, he incarnated. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And why does he come near? Why does he incarnate? Back to John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, 
so I have loved you. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot of times before, but God the Father has been loving God the Son for all of eternity. With that amount of love, Jesus Christ has loved you. And how did he love us? Verse 12, my command is this, love each other how as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so the very centerpiece of the Christian faith is God incarnate, giving up his preferences. Don't you think he would have preferred the sweet-smelling aroma of the incense in heaven to the disgusting smell of sacrifices and life on earth? Giving up his, his wants, his needs, ultimately his rights in order to lay down his life for his friends. And so when we talk about Jesus Christ being your friend, we're not talking about the old trucker hat, Jesus is my homeboy and we kick it on the weekends. That's not the picture. When Jesus says you're, he, you're his friend, he's your friend. What he means is he's the one who laid down his life for you. That's what it is to be a friend. And if we think about it, if we're honest, we haven't been good friends to Jesus. We've rejected him both in attitude and in action. That's what sin is. It's rejecting God in both attitude and action. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of that, God incarnates. God comes near. He's a true friend who comes and is honest with us, who cares for us, who instructs us, who has compassion for us. He feels it in his gut for us. And so what does he do ultimately? Ultimately, he gives up his rights for us. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Bible says, it says he knew no sin, that he never, ever sinned. He had every right at the end of his life on earth to be exalted. But instead, he's humiliated. He's crushed. He gave up his right to be exalted so that he could pay for our sins. He could pay for the ways that we've rejected him. And what that means ultimately is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and for me. Now, if you don't have a friend like that, you can. In just a few minutes, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And in your service order, there's a a little half piece of paper. And there's two prayers on there. And the second one is a prayer that you could pray if if you want Jesus Christ to, to truly be your friend. In a few minutes, you could take some time and pray that prayer. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, this means even if you don't think you have a friend like this, you do. You do have a friend like this. Which means that in him, you can find all the strength that you need to go out and lay down your life for someone else. In fact, what Jesus says in John 15, 14, is that your willingness, your ability to do that shows that he really is your friend. And so this is the wisdom of friendship. Both having a friend like this, and even more so, being a friend like this, this is what makes you wise. That you actually go out and live out the gospel in someone else's life, laying down your life for them. Now, let me just get really practical about that for just a minute, and then we'll be done. Because the question then becomes, well, how do you become this friend, and where do you make friends like this? You know, it might be that you have lots of friends. Maybe you have lots of them, but maybe they're not that wise. 
You know, a wise friend, as we saw earlier, is the one who's honest with you, who doesn't tell you what you want to hear. It's a friend who's caring, a friend who gives good advice, a friend who brings you joy. But it might be that you, your friends are the ones that lead you away from truth. It might be that your friends are the ones who encourage you to become a lesser version of yourself. To do things that actually are harmful to you and others. To like go along with them in their foolishness. And that's not a wise friend. That's, that's not a friend who's making you wiser. That's a friend that's making you a fool. But a good place to start with making a wise friend, and I, trust me, I already know this is going to come across as self-serving. I already know. So just, I'm just stating that at the outset. But a good place to start making a wise friend is here in the church. Listen, it's always going to be hard to make friends like this and to be a friend like this if you're always running out as soon as the service is over. Why? Remember? Friendship is incarnational. You have to be present. It requires shared experiences together. It's embodied. And so to make a friend requires embodied presence. Another way, again, I I realize how self-serving it sounds, but there is a reason why we do these things. And it's so that you can be and have friends like this. But, you know, Clint talked earlier about our men's group on Wednesday nights, our women's group on Thursday nights our time praying together on Sunday mornings. These are designated to bring about all four of the benefits of friendship. It's a place where people will be honest with you. Where people will care for you. Where they'll advise you towards Christ. Oftentimes there's lots of laughter. There's eating together. There's building experiences together. And so, yeah, it sounds self-serving, but it really isn't. It's, It's for you. It's for your benefit. It's not because we want to have lots of people coming. I mean, we do, but we want them to come so that you can have these friends. So you can be this friend. And so if you're not taking advantage of those things, then you're missing out on, uh, you're possibly missing out on making godly incarnational friendships. Now, there's one huge other benefit to making friends like this. One huge benefit to making friends like this. And then actually being friends with people in the church. I mean, just look around the room. There are people here who don't look like you. There are people here who don't talk like you. There are people here who make way more money than you, make way less money than you. And what making friends in the church allows you to do, do you remember how we said the beginning of a friendship, Lewis said, is to say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. The benefit of making friends within the church with other Christians is that all of us get to say that about Christ. What? You too? And that's the common thing that you share together. And so the wisdom of friendship actually allows you to make friends with people that are very different from you. A diversity of friendships. People from different perspectives, different points of view, different upbringings. And think of the richness and the wisdom that that brings into your life. Think of the ways you have to lay down your preferences for somebody who's not like you. And your wants and your desires and your rights. And this is what makes us wise. And so the wisdom of friendship is that you and I will not become wise unless we make and keep good friends. And so one of the best things that you and I can do to get wisdom, to become wise, is to be an incarnational friend to someone else. To enter into their joys. 
into their sorrows, to serve them, to be willing to give up our preferences, our wants, our needs, even our rights for them. And in doing that, not only do we become wise, but we make a friend who will likely do the same for us. And we get to help them become wise. You see how this works together? This is the wisdom of friendship. Uh, Let me pray, and then uh, Clint will come and lead us in the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ calls us his friend. And what that means is he laid down his life for us. And Lord, would you help us to be a friend like that? Help us to be a friend like that to somebody else in this church, in our community. And Lord, through that, would you make us wise? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.